Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another session of Unstoppable Leadership with our guest, Desiree Musselman. And I am going to love this conversation because we both are really about leadership. So I want you to introduce yourself to our audience. Let them know what got you started in doing what you're doing, because I think the background when it comes to that is what people once they understand the background of how somebody got into things, then they can really understand why we're moving forward and doing what we're doing now. Absolutely. So um, like Dawn said, my name is Desiree Musselman and I am the owner of Desired Effects Coaching and I do training and coaching for new to mid-level leaders. Right. So I like to call them the forgotten warriors. They're the ones that have one foot in corporate <laughs> and one foot in the field. <laughs> And they have to navigate that like craziness. So, um. oh, yeah, I love it that you said craziness because it is when you're brand new and you are a frontline leader mm -hmm. and you're trying to figure it out. And especially with my background, when you're in retail, you're pretty much said, OK, here you go. Good luck. And you're like, what? You know, and you learn how to navigate that. And it's just like. You're learning to navigate all these little minefields is what I call it, because sometimes that's exactly what it is. Well, you're in the trenches. This is where you like learn all your leadership <laughs> skills and you get thrown into the fire. Right. And this is where you either fall on your face or you cross your fingers and you actually make it through. And that support is often missing, right? Like for yeah. that that level. Um, and it's not any fault to the next level up. You're not, they're learning how to like navigate and help these people navigate underneath them. And they've never been in those situations. So it's kind of like that stacked effect. Um, but like I was telling you, my background is in the construction field. So very male dominated, very, um, it's just got that whole vibe to it. Right. And the company I came from used to lovingly joke that they, uh, they're 60 years behind, like the whole industry 60 year behind <laughs> everybody else. And I felt that. Um, so it, it caused me to like want to be better and want to grow my skills and be the best leader that I could. And I wasn't really getting a lot of help with it, aka why I want to help that kind of leader. And um, back in 2008, I experienced my first, first coaching session. Um, and it was not in a nice way. Um, my boss and I weren't seeing eye to eye and he thought this would fix me. Um, and back then that's like how coaching was used, right? Leadership coaching and development was used for the, the problem people. And uh, it was amazing. And I learned so much and I learned how to coach my own people and not from a space of like, you're messing up, but from a space of like, I want to help you be the best that you can and you want to be the best that you can. So let's do this together. Um, and that led me down emotional intelligence and leadership training and all of those things. And it just, it's my joyful job. And now I'm doing it full time and helping a ton of leaders. And I just love it. It's amazing. I love that you called it your joyful job because to bring joy into it, that's part of leadership because for a lot of people and for me, when you're not bringing that joy into it, and let's say that you get a coach that is really monotone and really drab, you're not going to learn that much. 
And when you bring somebody in that brings that joy and brings that enthusiasm, you're more likely to open up and you're more likely to learn. And that goes for leadership, too, when you're leading a team. Because if you're going like, okay, team, we have to get this done today. I mean, you're going like, what? So I love that you put that in there because that, that just shows the enthusiasm to be able to give them joy, but to show them exactly what you're talking about in that in leadership. Mm-hmm. So what I really want to dive into when you were talking about emotional intelligence, I think that's a huge one. And the reason for me that I say that's a huge one is it sort of ties in to intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And that's one of those things I really want to talk about when you're talking about emotional intelligence. So explain to those of us that don't understand what that is and why that's important. Emotional intelligence, I like to call it kind of your mental fitness, right? Emotional intelligence really allows you to go into situations and understand, one, how you're going to show up and have that self-awareness and that self-management and control to be able to affect a situation in a way that's positive in the outcomes that you want it to be. And it's really about the awareness of the people around you. And knowing them and having those conversations enough to understand not just what your brain is telling them they're going to do, but actually be able to take that 5,000 foot perspective and get out of your emotions and look at situations logically and be able to engage socially in a way that's positive for everyone. So that's why I like to call it mental fitness, because you're literally doing gymnastics and really building up those muscles to be able to interact with yourself in a positive way and other people in a positive way. Definitely. And that's important because when you learn how to do that, that was one of the things that I learned on my first go around is learning how to do that. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't get down into where some of these people go. You have to get above that because if you go down where some of your people are, it's going to be a disaster every single time. Mm -hmm. So what's one of the things that you teach people when you're talking about the emotional intelligence? How do you teach them to really start diving into that? How do you show them to look at that 5,000 foot perspective? I really, I really nerd out on the brain, brain science behind everything. Right. And one of the, one of the pieces that really resonates for a lot of my clients is understanding that our brain has mirror neurons, right? And we naturally will mirror and mimic the people that we're interacting with. So if somebody's coming at you and they're being like, they're super stressed out or they're super like upset about something, we naturally want to react in that way. So if somebody's coming at us with conflict, we're naturally going to get defensive and be conflict with them right and that's how our bodies naturally react and if we know that it helps with that self-awareness to go wait a minute i know this is going to be a conflict situation i don't want to react that way i want to stay above it so it takes us into choice versus default tendencies of reacting how the brain wants us to react yeah that's (laughs) yeah exactly and it's It reminds me of Dr. Joe Dispenza. He is a renowned 
doctor that talks about how to take control of your brain. Mm -hmm. He actually explains it as tell your brain to sit down like a dog. Now, I don't like that terminology. <laughs> so I change that up a little bit. And I'm going like what he's really talking about is you do you train your brain and you can do that. And it's called neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. And our brains are amazing, amazing. And once people realize that you can change those habits and you can change and rewire your brain because science is backing that up. And that's one thing I love it when people start talking about science because we have the science of today that is backing up a lot of things that when we were growing up, we had no clue. You know, we still were told, you know, if you're manager X or if you're manager Y, you're fixed this way. And that's how you're going to stay. But in reality, you can actually change. Mm -hmm. Yes, science says by the age of seven, we are pretty much fixed on what our, how we're raised and how we think and how we interact with things. But in reality, we can actually change that. And it's getting people to realize that when you're in leadership roles, that you can change that. Well, and you can change it with your team. You can change it within yourself. And it's, yeah. that's why I call it that mental fitness is really, it's learning your awareness, right? Learning what perspectives you want to jump into and then learning how to shift from one to the other. Yeah. And it sounds, I make it sound really easy, <laughs> but it takes a ton of practice, right? It's just like going to the gym and working those muscles. You have to do the same thing with your brain, but yes. the, the outcomes are amazing. And I have seen people shift in as little as like six weeks just by putting that focus onto it and really shifting how they're interacting with people. And it's that choice. It's knowing that you can control it. You can change the neural pathways in your brain. Yes, exactly. It, it takes as little as like 15 minutes a day, but it seems so overwhelming and daunting to people. It does. And I think that's one of the things as coaches that we can break that down into bite-sized pizzas for them to where they're going like, okay, this is doable. And once you start bringing that and you start changing that, and I think for a lot of leaders is changing mindset. And I know a lot of people roll their eyes when they talk about mindset shifts and all of that. And there's actually a good psychologist. I can't remember. I think it's Carol DeWalk if I remember her last name right. Well, the word, I think. Yes, that talks about the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And she actually wrote it in regards to school kids. But I bring that into leadership because just like we were talking about, you have the ex-manager that says, you know, employees are lazy and blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're only here just to get by with what they can do. And then you have the Y manager that's going like, well, I think, you know, associates want to come to work. And that's the same thing that she was talking about with the fixed mindset. You're going like, okay, I, I can't change how I think about things. You know, this is how it's always done and it's not going to change versus the growth mindset of going like, okay, so we can change this. I can change my attitude. And when you do that, you are changing your team and you're changing that culture. And it's just like, for some of my associates, I like to use the book of Who Moved My Cheese. 
And I think every leader, if they haven't read it, you should read it. It's a really mm-hmm. quick read, but it gets the point across because if you're going to be like that mouse that just sits there and go like, okay, the cheese was here, but where did it go? And I'm not going to move versus the mouse that moved after the cheese that was able to achieve their goal because they decided that they're going to change. Mm-hmm. And when you use that analogy, people are going to like, what? And they get it. And I think that's one reason why that book is so successful. No, absolutely. And I like to take it a little bit of a step further and talk about, you know, why do we not want to go after it? How is it supporting us to stay in the specific mindset that we're in? Because that's usually there. You're usually getting something from it, but you don't understand it. Even if you want to move out of it, there's a reason you're staying in that mindset versus the growth mindset. And I find when we figure that piece out, it just opens it up and it, it gets rid of it, right? We understand it. We got it. We're moving on from it and we can go into what we want to start doing now. And it's usually based off of default tendencies, based off of experiences in childhood and all of these things that we're like, we don't want to feel that way anymore, but we do. And it's safe, right? And then we can start shifting out of it and going, wait, that's not serving me anymore. Yes. Exactly. And that's another thing that a lot of people are really starting to understand is because I call it generational patterns. And I'm glad that you said the childhood thing, because in reality, that's one of the things in leadership that we've got to break is those generational patterns. And that's one reason we have to work on ourselves first in order to grow as a leader, in order to work on our teams because we do have to break those blocks. And then once you break those blocks, it's like, well, why was I fighting this so hard? You know, why, why did I keep dragging my feet? So, yeah. And that's exactly what it is. You were getting something from it. It was supporting you in some way. And we don't want to listen to that because we're like, no, we don't want to be that way. That's just bad. That's wrong. I don't like that about myself, but you're really getting something from it. You were really being supported. And that acknowledgement helps you move past it instead of fighting it. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of your clients' aha moments when they really got it and they really understood what true leadership is about. Oh, there's so many. Um, I think the number one is that there's this shift that happens for a lot of leaders where you realize it isn't the team. It's you, right? It's that moment when you're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm causing that to happen. That's why I'm having this like same problem with all of my employees. (laughs) And it's hard and that shift like just slaps you in the face and it is probably one of the hardest thing. And unfortunately, I mean, I feel it every day. There's more and more opportunities to realize that we self-sabotage more than we realize we do. Yeah. yeah, I can feel that. I can so feel that. I've done that, I don't know how many times throughout my retail career. And it was because I was going like, I think sometimes for me, it was, I got that big head. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think I had that big head, but I did. And it got me in trouble. And it took me being a coach 
a good two or three times before I finally realized, oh crap, you know, <laughs> this is not working. I've got to change how I do that. And once you realize that and, you know, sometimes some leaders come back from that and sometimes they don't. So talk about the ones that might have pushed it a little bit too far that they didn't come back from that. Oh, um, in the coaching world, we call them the uncoachables. <laughs> it's tough. And it's, I think it goes back to there's something there that we're holding on to. There's something that we have, like, whether it's the ego or for me, like my downfall as a leader has always been I'm a people pleaser, right? I want to help everybody. I want to support everybody. And it makes me a fantastic coach, makes me a really bad leader because <laughs> I could never see people for their own skills, right? There was always a fixing. There was always a solving. There was always something that I had to be there to make myself feel better. I had to make sure I was supporting them, even if I wasn't actually supporting them, right? And I, I realized I was holding people back because they weren't able to make mistakes. They weren't able to like fall on their face or learn from stuff or, or explore their own talents. And that, I mean, from my own experience, that's really hard to come back from because it's a catch 22. And for me, everyone saw that I was so helpful and they would come to me and they would keep feeding that like saboteur in me. So it was hard to get over that and it was hard to move past it. And it makes perfect sense why people would fail at it because here I'm getting something that I really need. Yeah. Yet it's hard. Like you have to take those lenses off and go, wait a minute, how am I messing everything up? And sometimes people can't. And, and in that moment, you come to an, a realization that you're just not cut out for it. And it can really be debilitating. And you are cut out for it. You just have to temper it. And it's that all or nothing thinking, I think, that really sets the leaders apart that can move forward versus the ones that can't. Yeah, definitely. And I, I totally agree because we so sabotage ourselves so much. And I was going like, I've done that. I was in, well, I'm still in retail. I've been in retail now for over 20 something years. And you learn as you go along that if you enable your team, that yes, you won't them to be able to come to you but at the same time you want them to grow mm -hmm. and I was the same way because I was going like okay so I know the answers and I know I can help them but learning how to turn it around and spin it around to where they can start helping themselves and what really really cemented for me one time was when I went on vacation and I think that really shows a true leader on whether you're growing your team or not. Because if you go on vacation and everything falls apart, then that should be a wake up call for you that you aren't doing something right for your team because they should be able to run without you. Mm -hmm. Well, and unfortunately, a lot of leaders, and I think it goes back to when we promote people, right? We usually promote the rock star that knew how to do it on their own and like just really excelled in their job. And they go into it feeling like they have to be the person, right? They have to have all the answers. They can't ask for help. They have to know how to do everything. They have to control everything, right? Like, cause that's how they got to where they were. 
and they possibly had a bad boss that didn't help them, right? So they had to do everything on their own. And then they go into this position and they're like, here I am, <laughs> I have to do everything, right? So when they come back from vacation or they have that moment, they don't see it as an aha. They feel like they didn't do the right job, but not in the way that we want them to. It's more in the world like, oh, I totally screwed up and now I have to do it way more. Like if I was doing it more, this wouldn't have happened. Instead of going, wait a minute, my team, I'm not letting them discover things on their own and they're not taking initiative because I'm not letting them take initiative. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And I've, I've learned with through developing teams, I've learned how to say, well, what do you think and how would you handle this if I'm not here? Mm -hmm. And the more that you give them that, the more that they're able to really handle things when you're not there. And I actually had a boss tell me one time about um, some of our salary member management. He said, and this, this hurt. He said they were trying to put out fires like a wet noodle, noodle burlap sack. And I'm going, oh, that's going, like, oh, that's rough. Mm -hmm. And once I worked with him for a little bit, I understood what he was talking about because they weren't being proactive. They were being reactive. And being reactive in a leadership role is one of the hardest things that I found to get people to break from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it's the number one thing that leads you to not want to delegate because you don't trust your people because you're constantly having to be the firefighter, right? Yeah. And you're not even trusting your team to be able to do it. So they don't trust themselves to do it. And it's like that catch 22, like one of my first leadership roles, one of my bosses told me, he goes, we just need to install a ticker tape because you don't let your people do anything. They have to take a number every time they come to your desk to get an answer because they're too afraid to do anything on their own. They have to pass everything by you. And I was like, oh, you're absolutely right. And I'm making my own stress and I'm working 12 hours a day because I'm controlling everything. Like I don't trust them. So therefore they don't trust themselves. Yeah. Exactly. And breaking that habit, I, that was one of the hardest things for me to break. But once I broke it, it was it was so freeing because you're able to really concentrate on the stuff that you need to do and develop your team and start bringing them along with you versus putting out every single fire there is in the business. Oh, and there was less there was less fires to put out. Yeah. Right? I went from working 12 hours a day feeling like I had to do everything to working eight hours a day, sometimes six hours a day and letting my, my team love it. Like they wanted to be at work. They wanted to like do everything. Like if I was out doing something, they were coming over going, wait, I want to do that. What are you out here doing? I'm like, well, I still have to like, I still have to touch stuff every once in a while. Like you guys can't do everything. Like I have a job, right? Like it got to that point. Right. And there was no, what the craziest part is, is the people pleaser, the, the supportive part of our leadership, that empathy tells us that we can't do that because then our team is going to like be resentful that we're not doing our jobs. But what's crazy is, is when you allow them to stand on their own two feet and you support them and you check in with them, they realize you're not just delegating off. 
you're actually supporting them in the way that they want to be supported and they never resent you from it. But it's always that fear that we're not pulling our own weight. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that took me so long to learn, especially working in retail because it is so, so much that there is so much to do. You have so many moving parts and you lose one moving part and it's just like it falls down just like that mm -hmm. so it takes that moment to learn how to delegate to your team and trust and one of my leaders was going like learn to trust but verify mm -hmm. and I was going like it took a long time to learn how to do that you're right when we were talking about the beginning sounds easy sounds mm -hmm. really easy but it's hard it's hard and we get in our own way and we make stories up to ourselves about what can happen and we have like doomsday scenarios of everything that could possibly go wrong and at the end of the day when we remember we're so good at putting out fires even if one comes up guess what's going to happen we're yeah. just going to take care of it but we don't even trust ourselves to be able to do that exactly so what is one of the biggest things that you see that's successful from somebody that's going from a frontline frontline manager to more of a mid-level? What is the biggest thing that you see that can get them to be successful when they're crossing over into that realm? I really think, and we hear it a lot, it's really that vulnerability to share with your employees, with your next, that next manager, that manager you just were, right? Hey, here's some of the things I ran into and I did not perfect them, right? Here's what I'm really good at. This is what I see you being really good at. Here's how we can support the team completely and get out of the day to day, right? It's not your space anymore. It's your comfort zone. You're going to want to like cut out that manager. <laughs> And there's layers, right? You have to build that confidence. And it's not you losing, it's not you losing touch with the field. It's you growing that next manager to know how to work in the field and feel supported. Definitely. And I totally agree with that because that's how you get people. What I've always been told is train people to replace you. Mm -hmm. So think of it that way when you're training leaders. So those of you that are listening, when you think of it that way, think of who you want to replace you. And I think for a lot of people, that's actually scary because they're going like, well, what's going to happen to me? Well, you're going to continue to grow, or at least that's what I hope that you won't, because otherwise you wouldn't be going to Desiree or coming to me. <laughs> so we want you to get comfortable to train people to replace you. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, it's replacing you to move up, not replacing you out. Yes. Right. And the one thing that will get you out the door as a leader the quickest is not finding that person. Right. And we hear it. They use different terminology. My favorite is we don't have a bench, right? There's no bench. I can't move you up, right? You never want that to be the excuse as to why you can't get a promotion. Yeah. Because you didn't trust your team. You didn't cultivate that next leader or multiple leaders. I always wanted like a full on bench because I didn't know it was coming up. 
right? They might've been moving me because they had some totally different idea for the location I was in. So the person that I saw as being perfect of taking over for me is in the scenario that I'm in. But I always wanted a bench to pull from because that might not have been where we went with it. Maybe we needed somebody that wasn't good with face-to-face. We needed somebody that was good behind the scenes. Yeah. You have to grow multiple people because we never know what the next group up above us is like figuring out. And they can't tell us, right? They can't tell us what's going on in all fairness. Yeah. They, and they honestly can't. I mean, it's, there is so much change right now in the world that trust in growing your people and growing your team. And it also increases retention too, as well. Um, you have right now, employers are fighting to get employees to hire people. So if you have people that you can actually pull from, you're increasing your retention rate, you're decreasing your turnover, you're actually lowering your cost for hiring because now you got people that you can pull from internally. And then when you're looking to fill an entry level, then you can pull from the outside. And that helps increase all of that. And it helps grow your company culture too as well, because then they're seeing, oh, okay, I can promote within this company. I can be something within this company. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's building that trust. And it's, it's like anything else. The retention is so important, but if you can engage your employees in a way that they feel supported and they feel valuable and you can understand what motivates them. And that, that is another key piece, a big thing that I see a lot of mid-level and new managers miss the mark on is that they feel everyone's motivated by money. Yeah. (laughs) It's never money. Like, it is not, I can 100, I, I always say, always is always wrong, never is never right, right? But in this case, I will say 100% of the time, it's not money that motivates people. It's what they can get from the money. Yeah. And when you figure out what they're trying to achieve by getting that raise or by getting that title change, then you're going to understand what's actually going to make them happy because it's not the money. It's never the money. We always talk about it like, oh my God, I gave this person like a 5% raise or I gave them like 10 grand more a year and they were not happy with it. And it has nothing to do with the money. (laughs) It's always what's behind it. It's always what they're trying to achieve behind that. So looking at that and focusing on that piece of it and understanding what really motivates your people is going to make you so much better and they're going to be so much more engaged and they will bring people into your company. They will find someone to replace themselves if they can move up. Exactly. And your current employees are your best referral tools Mm -hmm. to hire. And that's extremely underutilized, I think, in a lot of companies because of that. Because, you know, people are going like, well, you know, eh. It doesn't matter. And it does. I would rather hire somebody that is referred by another associate than to have to keep calling people that are applying and not knowing what you're going to hire, what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the first thing that always comes to mind when I have this conversation is, but there's nepotism, right? That doesn't mean you have to hire them into the same location that they're in, right? And even even if you did, I guarantee you, no one is going to refer somebody that they're going to have to clean up after. Yes. 
Like yeah. I truly trust and believe in that thought process because if they bring somebody onto the team, they're not going to want to float them. Mm -mm. They're going to want somebody that's actually going to pull their own weight. Yeah. And most people have already learned who they can refer and who they can't. Yep. Um, I've learned that the hard way myself. <laughs> so you learn really quick on how you can do that. You do. <laughs> so talking about motivation, I really want to swing into that just a little bit because one of the things that I found when it comes to motivation, I love team building exercises because it does bring about that motivation. You can sort of see how your associates tick when you do team building exercises. So what do you think about those when you have a leader? What do you think about having them do team building exercises like that? I love it. Um, the challenge I think with team building exercises is one, leaders usually aren't brought up to even understand how to do that. They, and even if they do it, right, let's say they, they go online and they find like a five minute team building exercise. The magic of team building exercises isn't the exercise itself. It's being able to tie whatever the exercise was back to everybody's own like values and what motivates them and having them like self-reflect on that, like really connecting the dots. And it's asking those open-ended questions at the end, like, why did we do this? Or what did you guys get from this? Or what can you take from it to be able to move forward? Or how can we integrate this, right? And they miss that piece. Yeah. And that, it's like the magic, it's the golden ticket of why you do that. You could do a five minute or you can do an hour long. If you don't do that last piece, <laughs> you just wasted all your time, right? Exactly. And you don't get the buy-in from your team. So I love leaders that can do that, but I also love it when leaders tap people in their team to be able to run those exercises because then they get to participate as a participant. They get to build that like confidence in the people and they get to help the team actually grow together of like, here's somebody, whether it's a warehouse associate or, you know, a driver or somebody that they wouldn't normally think of like leading gets to run that it opens up the whole team to go, hey, this is something that I didn't appreciate in this person before. Or it allows them to like champion and tell the guy, you can do it, right? <laughs> the guy or the girl, like you can do it. And they come together as a team even more than listening to like the mouthpiece of the location or the team preaching like there's just not as much buy-in. And I love that team building. I love it. Yeah. I love it too. Uh, my favorite one was when we did it's, I don't know exactly the name of it, but it took, it takes a lot of people to actually pull this one off, but you have a tennis ball in the middle mm -hmm. and you have a rope and then you have spokes going out around the rope. Well, then you have people that are blindfolded and then behind each person you have a supervisor they are leading that person that's blindfolded on whether to tighten the rope, slacken the rope, move left or right. And you had to work as a whole room and pick up that little reactive ball, dump it in a bucket, and you had to do it all together. But you did it blindfolded while your leader behind you was guiding you. And that was an awesome exercise because, number one, it's about trust. 
-hmm. You have trust in your leadership. You couldn't see. You had no clue what was going on. So you had to trust what that leader was telling you in order to get the team as a whole to have that goal and as that angle have that result of putting that reactive tennis ball in a bucket and succeed. So that was one of the most amazing ones. If y'all are listening, look that up because I guarantee you, you will learn a whole lot about your team and about yourself when you do that one. Now, I love that. I have two other versions of that, but you can do with less people. One of them, it uses a rope too. And you have, you tap, you make everybody put blindfolds on. They have one loop rope, right? And they're all holding on to it. And you, without saying anything, tap a couple people and they get to take off their blindfolds and they get to guide the rest of it to make like different shapes, right? Stars, hexagons, whatever it is. Right. And no one knows who those people are going to be. They just have to trust that they're guiding them in the right ways. Right. That one's amazing. The other one is actually more of a competition where you put, you have a team and you put out solo cups, right. All the way down the road. And it's like minefields. And one person has to put on a blindfold and walk through without ever touching a cup. They have to get to the other side but they're guided by someone that's on their team. Oh, how cool is that? I like that and, one. And you do like a relay race <laughs> where once you get to that side, the other person puts the blindfold on and then you have to guide them and whichever team, you know, wins, wins, like without touching one. They're amazing. Like that listening skills, right? Yes. Really giving clear, concise directions being able to trust the other person, it, it encompasses so many things that leadership is. Yes, definitely. I so those, those of you who are listening, take this to heart because there is a right way. And like we were talking about a wrong way of doing it. When you do those, do them and really pay attention to what is going on around you when you do them. You'll get a whole lot more insight. Even though I love taking like the Myers-Briggs, all of that. It's all fun, but you get a whole lot more insight when you do those team building exercises. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as we get ready to wrap up, what is one last tip you would love to give our viewers? Probably the biggest thing that I like to remind leaders is, is that you can trust your intuition. All of the voices in our heads that are telling us that we're going to fail or we need to be right or we can't trust our teams or we over trust our teams, whatever it is, there's a voice that counteracts all of those. And when we can learn to tap into that voice, we can really, really develop teams and develop a life for ourselves that is not stressful. <laughs> it's more comfortable. <laughs> And will allow the people around us to be able to follow us. It's not just us leading. It's really allowing people to trust us and follow us. Yeah. So if we can tap into that voice and trust ourselves. We can do amazing things as leaders. Definitely. And I totally agree with that. Trust. You have to trust yourself first before you start trusting anybody else. And that's a huge one. <laughs> so everyone, you can find Desiree at... 
does desired effects coaching.com that we got scrolling. Can they find you anywhere else? You can find me on Instagram under the same handle. You can find me on LinkedIn at Desiree Musselman. Um, and anywhere else you want. I come around. <laughs> Definitely. Desiree, I love having you on. This has been an interesting conversation. So go check her out. And I hope that if you don't find us or don't come to us, go to somebody, use the people in your network to grow your leadership skills. Don't be afraid to ever ask for help because that's one of the things as a leader, learn how to ask for help. Don't think that you have to do it by yourself because there's a whole community behind you. Absolutely. Dawn, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. This was fun. So thank you for coming on. And as always, as I love to sign off, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, you're unstoppable. You are the beacon of hope and you are loved. Everyone have a good evening. Bye.